I'm Elizabeth Flattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my heritage colleague, Kali Stimson. Kali, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what's been going on at the court, we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. So show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we're still offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You want to enter four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and bananas, lowercase, at checkout to get your discount. All right, now on to the show. The court issued eight opinions this week, so there are now 16 outstanding cases with just a few days left in the term. And we're going to hit a few of the highlights from this week. So first up was American Legion versus the American Humanist Association. This is the case challenging the constitutionality of a World War I memorial cross that's on public land in Bladensburg, Maryland. And this week, a fractured Supreme Court uh, upheld the constitutionality of this memorial, with seven members of the court voting to uphold it and only two members dissenting. Justice Sam Alito wrote for the plurality, with Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting. And, in fact, everyone except for Sotomayor and Chief Justice Roberts wrote separate opinions, so there's a lot to unpack here. Writing for the plurality, Alito found that though the cross is undoubtedly a Christian symbol, this particular memorial cross doesn't violate the Establishment Clause because it has taken on a secular meaning of memorializing fallen soldiers. On the subject of the Lemon Test, under which courts examine the purposes and effects of a challenged government action looking for an Establishment Clause violation, uh, as well as looking at any entanglement with religion, the plurality highlighted Lemon's many shortcomings but did not overturn it as the challengers had requested. Instead, the plurality opted for, quote, a presumption of constitutionality for longstanding monuments, symbols, and practices. Moving on to the myriad concurring opinions, first up, Justice Breyer, who was joined by Justice Kagan, concurred, saying that there's no single formula for resolving Establishment Clause challenges. Instead, judges should consider each case in light of the basic purposes that the religion clauses were meant to serve. Justice Kagan, in her own concurrence, wrote that the court should continue to heed the Lemon Test's emphasis on purpose and effects in Establishment Clause challenges. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, he wrote underscoring that the lemon test is not good law. And he also noted that though the memorial cross is constitutional, the Constitution does not require the state of Maryland to maintain the cross. There are any arguments for people who find it objectionable, such as appealing to the state legislature or governor, or, or saying that there may even be legal redress under the state's Constitution. And he gives a shout-out to Jeff, uh, Judge Jeff Sutton's book, 51 Imper- Imperfect Solutions. Moving on, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that he's skeptical of whether the Establishment Clause applies to the states at all, and he would also have made clear that Lemon is overruled. And finally, for the concurrences, Justice Gorsuch, who was joined by Thomas, wrote that the court needs to get rid of what's known as offended observer standing, which isn't allowed in any other area of the law. Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent joined by Sotomayor, saying that the state has elevated Christianity over faith, other faiths, and religion over non-religion, and that that kind of endorsement violates the Constitution. So it seems a case-by-case approach will continue at the court when it comes to Establishment Clause cases, rather than uh, a new standard such as the coercion test 
that some of the challengers thought. Uh, so, Cully, you want to talk a little bit about moving from, from Maryland to Virginia in the DMV. Uh, what happened with the redistricting case this week? Yeah, let's move across the river uh, to Virginia House of Delegates uh, versus Bethune Hill. Uh, this, as you know, uh, was the big one of the big redistricting cases. Uh, this one out of Virginia. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion, and she was joined uh, by Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch. And they actually dismissed the appeal filed by the state House of Delegates, holding that the House did not have standing to appeal either the state's interest or its own interest. Uh, the court concluded that the only, that only the state attorney general had the authority under Virginia law to represent the state's interests and file an appeal, and of course he didn't. Uh, furthermore, the House of Delegates lacked standing to file an appeal on its own behalf uh, because while redistricting lines may affect the chamber's membership, the House as an institution had no cognizable interest in the identity of its members, and uh, Justice Alito dissented. Uh, he was joined by the chief and Justice Breyer and Kavanaugh, uh, and he argued that the state house has standing to sue because redistricting has, quote, institutional and legislative consequences, unquote. He further added that to suggest otherwise, quote, to argue that substituting one plan for another has no effect on the work or output of the legislative body whose districts are changed would really be quite astounding, unquote. So here you see two cases uh, once again, in the last few weeks uh, of the term, where it doesn't break down by conservative or uh, so-called liberal justices, they're sort of all over the board. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Um, so the chief justice, since he was in, in dissent in this case, that means that the next most senior member of the court got to assign the justice who wrote the opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that would be Justice Thomas, and he assigned it to, to Justice Ginsburg. And it's it's not all that often that you see Ginsburg and Thomas uh, joining up together uh, in a ruling. Right. All right, moving on to uh, to another recent decision, Gundy versus United States. This was a decision upholding the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act of 2006 as a valid delegation of authority to the executive branch. So this was a plurality opinion written by Justice Kagan. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in the decision because the court heard oral argument before he had been confirmed last fall. So this act, uh, which is known as SORNA, requires sex offenders to register in every jurisdiction where they live, work, or go to school. And Congress delegated to the Attorney General the power to determine how, when, and if the law's registration requirements would apply to sex offenders convicted before SORNA became law in 2006. So by way of background, the Constitution prohibits Congress from delegating its legislative authority to the executive branch. But in practice, the court has upheld delegations as long as Congress specifies an intelligible principle to guide the executive branch in exercising discretion to make law. So to date, the court has only struck down two laws for violating the non-delegation doctrine, and those were both back in 1935. So fast forward to this case, Herman Gundy is a pre-SORNA sex offender who drugged and raped an 11-year-old girl and was charged with failing to register as a sex offender after his release in 2012. So there's no denying that he committed the kind of horrendous and predatory crime that illustrates why SORNA's registration requirement is, is necessary for public safety. But what Gundy argued at the court was that Congress went too far in granting unfettered authority to the attorney general to decide whether and how to apply a law that carries criminal sanctions 
to an estimated 500,000 individuals. The court, however, disagreed with Justice Alito providing the decisive vote. And I think this is perhaps the first time or close to the first time that Justice Alito has provided the fifth vote uh, with the liberal bloc, the so-called liberal bloc of justices. Alito concurred in the judgment, writing that he can't say SORNA lacks an adequately discernible standard under the non-delegation approach that the court has taken since 1935, but he's open to reconsidering that issue in another case. Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissenting opinion, which was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas. Uh, He noted that the Constitution promises, quote, only the people's elected representatives may adopt new federal laws restricting liberty. Yet the statute before us scrambles that design. It purports to endow the nation's chief prosecutor with the power to write his own criminal code governing the lives of a half million citizens. And he he closed his dissent saying that in a future case with a full panel, since, of course, uh, they only had eight members of the court for this decision, um, he wrote that he remains hopeful that the court may yet recognize that while Congress can enlist considerable assistance from the executive branch, it may never hand off to the nation's chief prosecutor the power to write his own criminal code. And he said that that is, quote, uh, delegation running riot, and he was quoting Justice Benjamin Cardozo from one of those 1935 decisions. So it seems the court's lax enforcement of the non-delegation doctrine may be living on borrowed time, uh, with Justice Alito essentially inviting a, a challenge in perhaps a different uh, a different area of the law in the future. Yeah, and you look um, at his you look at his concurrence. I think that might have been the shortest concurrence he's ever written. It was a it was a yeah. mere paragraph. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Short and sweet and to the point. Yep. Um, But moving on, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the Gamble decision? Sure. Uh, Gamble against the United States uh, was a criminal case, uh, challenged uh, the dual sovereignty doctrine uh, in this in a double jeopardy case. Uh, This guy pleaded guilty uh, in an Alabama state court to a crime of ex-felon in possession of a firearm and in an opinion written by Alito, joined by the chief, Thomas Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh, they held that, that a crime under one sovereign law is not the same offense as a crime under the laws of another sovereign. And as you know, under the dual sovereignty doctrine, a state may prosecute a defendant under state law, even if the federal government has prosecuted him for the same conduct or vice versa. The dual sovereignty doctrine is not an exception to the double jeopardy right, as the court said, but instead flows from the Fifth Amendment's text. So an offense is defined by law, and each law is defined by a sovereign. So here the court uh, refused uh, to overturn the longstanding dual sovereignty uh, doctrine. Thomas uh, concurred in the judgment, but wrote separately to address the role of the doctrine of stare decisis, arguing that the court's typical formulation does not comport, quote, with our judicial duty under Article Three because it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions over the text of the Constitution and other duly enacted federal laws, unquote. Justice Ginsburg dissented, arguing that the United States and, quote, its constituent states are kindred systems, unquote, thus one sovereign for purposes of the dual uh, double jeopardy clause. And finally, uh, Justice Gorsuch dissented, uh, arguing that the separate sovereign exception to the bar against double jeopardy finds, quote, no meaningful support in the text of the Constitution, its original public meaning, structure, or history, unquote. Really, if you look at the commentary after this case came down, it's the Justice Thomas concurrence that's gotten a lot of play, 
uh, because of his eloquent and rather long uh, concurrence dealing with the doctrine of stare decisis. Yes, Justice Thomas has written quite a lot about stare decisis, and he thinks it's for suckers. Mm-hmm. He does. <laughs> so, of course, a lot of the commentary about you know about uh, his view of stare decisis is, of course, tied to the future of Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court. Um, but this was obviously a very different area of the law, and one that he and Justice Ginsburg had previously written uh, that the the court might want to revisit. Mm-hmm. Well, moving on to the orders list, uh, the most um, significant order of the week was the uh, Klein versus Oregon uh, Bureau of Labor. This is the court granted, vacated, and remanded that case. Uh, and this was uh, this was sort of a similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from last year, um, where we had a situation with a bakers in Oregon who declined to make a custom um, wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. And so um, it's unclear why it took the court so long uh, to issue this order in the case. Uh, the cert petition was filed last October. It was distributed for conference before the justices 13 times and rescheduled three times. Um, and it, it seemed that, you know, with, with that track record that either someone was writing a lengthy dissent from denial of cert or the court was really struggling with uh, whether to take up the case. Uh, but now the case has been sent back to the state court uh, for it to review its ruling in light of the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision from last year. And um, in this case, the, the State Bureau of Labor and Industries had ordered um, the the business to, to pay the couple that it declined to make a, a cake um, for their wedding $135,000 in damages, uh, which then drove the, the bakers out of business. Uh, so the bakers said that this, this case offered the court the opportunity to, quote, resolve disagreements in lower courts about what kinds of expression that merit First Amendment protection and the precedential status of this court's hybrid rights doctrine, which applies strict scrutiny in the case of free exercise claims that implicate other fundamental rights. So it seems that the court was not ready to take up another one of these uh, one of these cases, um, but there are others in the lower courts, and I, I think it you know this one may end up coming back again. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, but I recently spoke with Third Circuit Judge Thomas Hardiman. Thomas Hardiman is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Hardiman. Thank you, Elizabeth. So first in your family to graduate from college, you drove a taxi part-time to put yourself through Notre Dame before attending Georgetown for law school. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what drew you to pursue a career in the law. Well, I grew up in uh, a city of about 60,000 people called Waltham, Massachusetts. It's the same town that my mom and dad uh, grew up in. So uh, we're sort of uh, deeply rooted in the Waltham community. And uh, my grandfather started a small business there. He was a cab driver. He actually uh, went to work after the eighth grade. So he never went to high school uh, and uh, started work and became a cab driver and he had the entrepreneurial bug. So he started his own company with one cab and then uh, grew the business. Uh, after that, he added a limousine that was used to do weddings and funerals. Um, and uh, my dad grew up in that business. And other than a two-year stint in the Marine Corps, my dad uh, spent 
basically 60 years of his life working in that business, uh, family business. And my dad expanded it from taxi cabs to uh, special needs transportation with uh, wheelchair vans and uh, station wagons and sedans transporting children all around eastern uh, Massachusetts with contracts with school districts. So uh, I grew up in that business uh, sort of the way my dad did. But Unlike my dad, he encouraged us to uh, to pursue education and uh, go to college, and, and that's what I and uh, my four uh, younger siblings all did. I'm the oldest of five children. And so uh, what drew you to a career in the law? Well, that's sort of a funny family story. If you grew up in Waltham and you were doing well in school, as I was, your relatives would ask you at family functions, oh, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? <laughs> and I never really liked the sight of blood, so I would reflexively say a lawyer. And uh, as time went on, uh, it became a little more um, intentional. My mother claimed that I liked to argue with her and that uh, I'd make a good lawyer one day because of my penchant for arguing. <laughs> That's great. So if you hadn't become a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing today? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know. I wanted to be Roger Staubach when I was a kid. I wore number 12, and I loved football, and I thought, I'm going to play in the NFL. Well, that <laughs> didn't last very long. Uh, so I would not be playing uh, in the NFL, uh, maybe in business, uh, maybe in the family business. It was a it was a successful uh, little business that my dad uh, grew over time. And, in fact, uh when he sold it, he sold it to a childhood friend of mine who's grown the business substantially and has become very successful. So uh, uh, transportation uh, was sort of in our blood, so maybe I would have stayed in, in that business. So you've been a judge for about 16 years now, most of that time as an appellate judge. Uh, tell me about some of the highlights uh, of, of being a judge. Well, you're right. Uh, I started as a district judge, but that was only a three-and-a-half-year uh, period of time, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. It was very, very interesting, challenging work to, uh, to perform all the functions of a district judge, including uh, civil and criminal jury trials and injunction hearings, uh, guilty plea sentencings. Uh, it really was quite interesting work. Um, the circuit judge position is is quite different it's more academic it's it's more uh, pensive we have more time to think about our decisions uh, tremendous amount of reading and writing uh, but it never gets old uh, we have a, a, a wide variety of cases that we handle uh, on the civil and criminal side and cases that come from administrative agencies and uh, even though most days are spent reading and writing uh, the subject matter changes, which is, is quite uh, interesting to me. So it, it's sort of hard to believe I've been doing this for 16 years. It <laughs> feels like a much shorter period of time. So would you say you like being an appellate judge better than uh, your three-year stint as a district court judge? Yeah, I can't say that. It, it, it's it's very much an apples and oranges mm -hmm. comparison. I, I've enjoyed both thoroughly. Um, uh, it, it, it's sort of like asking one whether you like your son more than your daughter. You know, it, it just, it, there's no there's no answer to the question uh, in my case. I, I think some people perhaps like one more than others, mm -hmm. but uh, but I've uh, I've enjoyed them both 
although I've certainly been doing the uh, the appellate judging for a much longer period of time. So uh, the longer the years go by, the more the district court work seems like a distant memory. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. Virgin Islands are under your appellate court's jurisdiction. Do you ever get to travel there? Yes, we do. Nice. Each uh, judge on our court sits there every, uh, on average, probably once every three years or so, two or three years, sometimes four years. Uh, but it's it's a rotation. Our, our assignments are all random. Uh, so the, the panels are always um, a different composition of, of judges on our court. And it's a wonderful uh, opportunity, especially uh, if the sitting is in December. <laughs> I bet. That's a that's a nice perk of the job. So your chambers are located in Pittsburgh, but as you mentioned, you, you grew up in Waltham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. So are you a Steelers fan or are you a Patriots fan? Well, I'm a Steelers fan. Um, and that's... Uh, a little bit of a long story, but the short version is that when I was a kid, uh, it was all about the Red Sox, and uh, and then Larry Bird showed up, so it was all about the Celtics and the Bruins, <laughs> because Bobby Orr was playing when I was a kid. So there just wasn't much time or energy spent on the Patriots, and that also was compounded by the fact that I was a big Notre Dame fan, so I was more interested in football on Saturdays than Sundays. <laughs> um, but I moved to Pittsburgh uh 27 years ago, and uh, when my wife and I were married, and quickly became a Steelers fan because uh, it's just a remarkable tradition that the Steelers have. It it really uh, it's almost second religion here, the same way Red Sox are second religion <laughs> up in uh, up in Boston. So I'm still a Red Sox fan, uh, still a Celtics fan, but I'm a, a Steeler and a Penguins fan. <laughs> That's great. So, but I don't hate the Patriots, so I, I feel like Switzerland. It's strange because when the Patriots play, and they've had so much success, obviously, with Tom Brady, people get very, very irrational and uh, angry, either pro or for the Patriots, and I just don't <laughs> feel passion either way. So I feel a little bit like I could be a good arbiter in all things Patriots because I just don't have have uh, any antipathy for them at all, but I don't have the same sort of deep love for them that I do for the Red Sox. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, let's talk about your chambers a little bit. Uh, do you have anything in your in your chambers to show off your personality? Well, uh, as I look around, no, just kind of the usual stuff, you know, the commissions on the wall, the nice letters, uh, some uh, historical uh, paintings, the surrender at Yorktown, and uh, things like that. I've got some memorabilia. Uh, I've got a a photo uh, of Justice Thomas and myself when he came to uh, be on a panel here at Duquesne uh, Law School. But I've got mostly family things around, a lot of family photos. And um, I've got some great um, memorabilia from my law clerks, too, that's all sort of stacked up over there and and some things on the wall with fun photos of uh, rafting trips and uh, other things with law clerks. Well, speaking of your law clerks, you must have a pretty big group of former clerks after 16 years. Uh, and you mentioned rafting trips. So is that uh, a, a standard outing you take your clerks on? We've, we've done that a few times. We don't really have too many things that are standard, except we have an annual reunion. Uh, so in late August each year, uh, the current clerks on their last day of work uh, get to meet up with all of the alumni. And uh, it's 
a, a weekend together. We have a dinner on Friday, and then Saturday is uh, golf and uh, ski shooting and the pool activities. Now that my clerks are starting to have uh, babies, which is a lot of fun, <laughs> uh, there will be more activity at the pool, I think. And then we have a little bit of a formal dinner on Saturday night, which is always a very um, emotional uh, uh, time for me because it's... Uh, it's the culmination of the one-year clerkship that my clerks have, and it's always always very sad to see them go. Another tradition we have, we just completed yesterday, as a matter of fact, the Pittsburgh Marathon uh, offers a relay competition. So my four clerks and I uh, typically uh, run that relay. This has been the 11th year in a row that we've done that, and uh, it was pouring rain yesterday, but we all <laughs> survived. That's why my voice is a little bit hoarse from the uh, <laughs> a little bit of chill and a little bit of rain, but we all finished, so it was fun. And we get a lot of alumni who come back. Um, a couple of my law clerks ran the half marathon yesterday, and a lot of times alumni clerks will come back and sometimes run the full marathon in so, addition to having some relay teams. Is that something you, you ask about in the interview process, if uh, if a prospective clerk would be open to running a marathon? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I, uh, I've been falsely accused of hiring runners, and that's not true. So, some of my clerks are great runners. In fact, one of my clerks um, who participated yesterday has completed a marathon, but some of the others um, had no interest in running and uh, are not particularly athletic. So it's always fun because, um, you know, it, it, there's a wide... Uh, divergence in, in talent and, and perhaps an even wider divergence in interest. But mm-hmm. um, people seem to feel compelled to do it, even though I insist that it's voluntary. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure they all feel it's very voluntary. <laughs> well, shifting gears a bit, uh, you've been involved with the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program in, in Pittsburgh for some time now. How did you get involved with this organization? Tell me a little bit about it. Sure. I started in college um I guess it was my sophomore year. I uh, at Notre Dame. Um, there's a presentation on campus, and uh, there's a great spirit of volunteerism and uh, really a sense of obligation to try to help out those in need. That that is very pervasive at Notre Dame, and and part of my Catholic faith. Um, and uh, I was. Uh, uh, on campus, and there was a presentation about Big Brother, so I just decided to volunteer, and I was matched uh, with a little brother, and uh, that lasted a year, and then I studied abroad um, in uh, in Mexico, so that was a short-lived relationship, but I had a real affinity for the organization. I think the organization does fabulous work, so when I moved to Pittsburgh, um, I was looking for something to get involved in here when my wife and I were newly married, and that was it. So I got started uh, pretty quickly after moving here in 92, and uh, I think I went on the board in the mid-90s, perhaps around 96 or so, somewhere around there, and I've been on the board ever since and served as the president for a couple of years and actually got matched again. Uh, it started as a school-based mentoring program, and then we uh, converted it to a community-based match. And my little brother's now in his, his mid-20s and a uh, college student, and uh, I just think it's a terrific organization. That's wonderful. So a lot of our listeners are law students and young lawyers just starting out. So I wonder if you have any must-read book suggestions for them. 
Well, there's so many important things to read. I uh, was a great books major, so uh, I think it's important to read some some works of political philosophy before you even get into the legal tracks. Things like Aristotle's Politics, John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, um, uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America. There are a lot of texts that aren't directly legal that I think are sort of foundational to understanding uh, our legal system. Uh, in terms of legal books, um, uh, Justice Scalia's book uh, for a lawyer, Making Your Case, is a, a terrific one. For judges, um, A Matter of Interpretation and Reading Law by Scalia and Garner, those are all books that we make reference to with some frequency reading laws is sort of foundational, I think, for judicial interpretation. Um, some fun books, uh, John Marshall uh, by Gene Edward Smith, I think is a terrific read. Um, a book I read a few years ago that uh, is really interesting called Ratification by Pauline Mayer. Um, you know, I'd studied a lot about the Constitution in college, reading Madison's notes on the debates at the convention. Uh, so it was really fun to, to uh, start studying more about uh, what happened after the Constitution was drafted and, and the, the battle for ratification. Uh, and Alexander Hamilton by Chernow, uh, also sort of, of of that same in that same vein, is is. Uh, Good book, but there are too many to name, right? <laughs> it's amazing how many great books there are out there. Yeah, right now I'm reading the the new um, Scalia book on faith. It's a collection of his speeches about faith, and it's you know it's it's just fantastic. Uh, he had such a way with words, and I, I, I'm really enjoying that right now. Yeah, I, that'll be on my summer reading list because uh, now that I I've finally finished Scalia speaks, that was really fun to to. Uh, to read his speeches, mm-hmm. um, and particularly uh, of interest to me because my wife is of Italian heritage and my heritage is Irish. So <laughs> the speech that he gave um, was it was amazing how he nailed the Irish when he gave that speech up in up in New York. But being oh, married yeah. to uh, to Maureen, I guess uh, made it easy for him to understand the Irish. <laughs> that was a great speech. Well, one final question: something I ask all guests at SCOTUS One Hundred and One. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I've been blessed to have conversations with the living justices. Um, so I, I guess I'd, I'd think of one who is deceased, probably Joseph Story. Um, can't say Marshall, right? That's not allowed. Because so, <laughs> um, uh, Marshall really was a fascinating guy, and I... Mm-hmm. I um, I am intrigued by how different he was than uh, than Jefferson and, and the rivalry between the two. But I think Joseph Story would be a really really interesting person to to talk to for a lot of reasons. Um, he's also from Greater Boston. I think he was from Marblehead or in, studied in Salem on the North Shore of Boston. And his father was a doctor, so he sort of came from an educated family. But he was the oldest child and. Um, became a judge young and uh, 
what would be most interesting, I think, would be to talk about just growing up with the Constitution, because I mm-hmm. think he was around 10 years old when the Constitution was ratified. Uh, so here's a guy who ended up on the Supreme Court, served for so long, not only on the Marshall Court, but in the early years of the Taney Court. And um, he, he really grew up with the Constitution and his you know, commentaries on the Constitution. Uh, is that's another book that everybody should read who cares about the Constitution because it was you know written relatively closely to the um, adoption of the Constitution. But I think he'd be a, a fascinating uh, person to, to spend a few hours with. I'd, I'd be full of questions for him. And I'd be really curious as to what his answers might be. Definitely, that would be a a great conversation to have. Well, Judge Hardiman, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was my pleasure, Elizabeth. Thanks for your time. All right. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. I'm going to try to stump my co-host, Colley Stimson. Uh-oh. Here we go. All right. First question. Justices have hailed from 31 of the 50 states. I'm going to give you four states, and I want you to tell me which one was the birthplace of a Supreme Court justice. The others are part of the 19 sad states that haven't had any hometown heroes go to the high court. Okay, so here are the four states. Hawaii, Washington State, Alaska, or Maryland? Um, Maryland. That is correct. Uh, There have been a number of justices who called Maryland home, including the infamous Chief Justice Roger Taney and old bacon face (laughs) Samuel Chase. Yeah, and old right, Roger Tawney's from Frederick, Maryland, where I grew up. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I was an educated guess. <laughs> All right. You're off to a great start. Second question. How many Supreme Court justices once served as law clerks at the Supreme Court? And this includes some who have departed. Now, you can give me a ballpark. So less than five, five to ten, ten to twenty. Uh, Wow. It's it's more common today than it was before. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would say 15 to 25. Oh, wow. Actually, only eight. Oh, brother. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I can tell you the, the, the eight lucky ones uh, and not all of the current justices served as law clerks. So they, there was Byron White, mm-hmm. uh, William Rehnquist. John Paul Stevens, Stephen Breyer, John Roberts, Elena Kagan, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. Wow. Swing and a miss. Okay. (laughs) Third question. Who was the first president recorded as a witness to the swearing-in of a Supreme Court justice? I can give you a hint if it's helpful. Uh, Yeah, let me phone a friend, you being the friend. The, the president and, and this justice had a close relationship, and the justice had served in the administration. Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, as attorney general, does that help? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a hard one. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that would be, well, as attorney general. Um, I have two names in mind, but I would say it's either... Uh, Truman, probably not, or way earlier, and it would be, 
You're close with Truman. Not that far off. Ike. <laughs> no, it was FDR. Um, at the, he was at the swearing-in for of Frank Jackson. Murphy, who had been oh. his attorney general. Okay. Um, the, uh, the swearing-in took place at the White House in 1940 and was conducted by another FDR appointee, uh, Justice Stanley Reed. Mm-hmm. Okay, fourth question. The associate justice's seniority is determined by when they join the court. How is seniority determined if two justices take their oath on the same day? Well, I guess you didn't say which hour of the day. Um, <laughs> so I would think if one is sworn in before the other, they're senior. Um, but if it's exactly at the same moment at the same day, then I would think whoever had the higher court, like if they were a circuit court judge versus a district court judge or something like that. I don't know. Oh, they're, they're steeped in tradition. Interesting. Yeah. That would be a novel way to do it. They do it by age. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, an example of this in, in recent history uh, is Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist were sworn in on January 7th, 1972. They were sworn in together. Um, Powell was born in 1907. Rehnquist was born in 1924. So Powell was more senior. But... Rehnquist surpassed Powell in seniority when he became Chief Justice in 1986, uh, and that was only for Powell's final year on the court. Makes sense. Well, okay, one for four. Okay, question. I was going to say one for four. That's a that's a that's a not a bad batting average, but I think it's going to be heading down here in a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, last question, <laughs> um, and this is about the current the current court. Okay, the average time from argument to decision is 97 days. Which justice has the fastest average for churning out opinions, and who is the slowest? Which current justice? Mm-hmm. Is the fastest at getting opinions out. Yeah. Um, this I would, justice is also the most prolific. Oh. Um, then I would say uh, the fastest would be... Alito, the Speedy Gonzalez oh, Award. He's the slowest. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, well, then uh, Alito's the slowest. Um, <laughs> uh, let's just let's just go with uh, Ginsburg. Okay, so Ginsburg is a is a close second, mm. but it's actually Justice Thomas. His average is seventy days. Wow. And uh, Justice Ginsburg, who on occasion has referred to herself as a rapid ruse, right. is not far behind at 73 days. Mm. Now, Justice Alito, his average is 150 days. So he's quite a ways wow. behind Thomas and Ginsburg. <laughs> but the thing I think that is, is particularly incredible for Thomas is when you consider uh, that he he routinely authors twice as many opinions as his colleagues, if you add up his majority concurring and dissenting opinions each, each term. Mm-hmm. So he is just a powerhouse when it comes to, to cranking out those opinions. <laughs> wow. Well, Kali, you did you did okay on Supreme Trivia, uh, but thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org 
with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. And don't forget to check out our SCOTUS 101 mugs at shop.heritage.org. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.